All right, church, for those uh, preschoolers going to the preschool class, you are now dismissed. Church, uh, this morning is a a special Sunday. We are delighted to have a a guest uh, preacher with us. Uh, Dr. Nicholas Piotrowski is here. Uh, He serves as the president of ITS. uh, That's Indianapolis Theological Seminary, which is a newer seminary uh, in Indianapolis that both uh, Pastor Kevin and myself have taken classes at and we've benefited from. Uh, Many of you know LifePoint Church, who's uh, friends and partners with us. Pastor Jim there serves on the the board of ITS as well, and they they host some classes. And so uh, we are are grateful for uh, the the ministry of ITS. Uh, For so long, you know, those that that wanted more theological training had to travel out of state or had to take online classes, things like this. And, And some would come back to Indiana to serve in local churches, and some would not. And, uh, and so now we have a solid seminary in Indianapolis that can serve local churches and glorify God uh, uh, through all that they do. And so uh, we're thankful, uh, Dr. P, for you being here, for being away from your wife and two boys and church family. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad for you guys to, to get a chance to meet Dr. P, to hear, uh, just to even become more aware of, of ITS and uh, all that God is doing through him. So, uh, church, would you welcome Dr. P with a round of applause, please? Thank you, Grant, for that welcome. And Kevin, as well, have gotten to know these brothers over the last few years and deeply enjoyed that and meet Pastor Gary and his wife this morning. Uh, I feel very welcome in this place, not the least of which because you sing so well. This is a, a good singing congregation, and I feel like I can know something of the congregation by the way they sing. Uh, and so thank you for your heartfelt devotion to the Lord, of course, and welcoming me here this morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 32. Nearly everything I say this morning will come right from Psalm 32, so you can go ahead and turn there. <clears throat> and as you do, let me turn your attention to Aristotle and fish. Two things you probably were not thinking about this morning, but I would like to invite you to do exactly that right now. Of course, you need to ask, what do Aristotle and fish have to do with each other? And more importantly, what do they have to do with you? Well, Aristotle used fish as an illustration, an illustration of how people are culturally embedded and may not know it. He asked a simple question. Does a fish know that it's wet? Do fish know that they're wet? How could they know they're wet unless they've experienced time on the land and experienced what it's like not to be wet? then maybe they don't even know that there is a thing called wetness and that they are wet. Now to return to the question of why this matters to us, fish are, as I mentioned, an illustration. What about us? We live and move every day in a particular cultural stream. Flowing around us are influences that seem normal to us because we've not spent any or much time outside of our culture to appreciate how strange they actually are. Economic systems, moral systems, are uh, the entertainment that surrounds us, communication habits, and all these kinds of things. We live in what we call the West. 
And we've been raised by the West. And if you haven't been raised in the West, maybe you grew up in Africa or Asia or, or something like that. Nonetheless, you're here now. You're, you're drinking in these waters. And so it's easy for us to absorb from the culture certain ideas and morals that we think are normal. Whereas in God's mind, they are abnormal. Let me give you an example. What is sin? What is sin? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Very simple definition. Any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. But around us, when people speak of the root cause of the human predicament, you grab somebody on the street and you say, What's wrong with humanity? What is the problem? Very few people will say, well, want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Rather, sin in our culture has been redefined to mean something like not being true to yourself. Not being true to yourself. You see, sin, if such a thing exists, is a psychological, self-imposed prison. There are deeply entrenched, debilitating cultural expectations Tradition, parents, schools, customs, the worst of all, religion, that are given to us from our past that expect us to conform to them. And as they try to press us into their mold, we can't be true to ourselves. And so if there is a definition of sin, it is not being true to yourself. Ever heard that before? Be true to yourself? Or I got to be true to myself? And so the solution, of course, is what? Be true to yourself. Break free from those historical, cultural traditions, religion schools, your parents' ideas, and chart your course on the open seas of your own decision-making, guided by your own intuition. Be true to yourself. Have the bravery to stare down those historical and cultural norms and thrust yourself out with your own moral compass. In fact, to not do so would be sin. Let me give you an example. I've become quite the expert on children's movies in the last, say, 10 years of my life. And one of them, I don't need to identify it. If you've seen it, you know what, uh, uh, you'll, you'll be able to identify it. The, the problem with the movie, the problem in the movie, is that there's two groups of characters and one are cute, and you know they're full of life, and they're always very happy. And the other are a bunch of curmudgeons, these gremlin-like characters who are very unhappy. They're very unhappy. And the second group, their pursuit in life is to find happiness. There must be some way to be happy. And they have a priestess who teaches them that their customs and their traditions and living by those customs and traditions will be what makes them happy. So it's very interesting that the ultimate bad guy in the movie is related to a religious figure, someone who's giving them what would be called religious direction, right? But the other group, that first group, who's always happy, they're asked, well, how do, how do you find this happiness when we're all so uh, glum and so forth? And one of the characters says, well, you find it inside of yourself. You find it inside. It's not in culture. It's not in history. 
It's not in uh, religious practices or whatever. Rather, you find it inside of yourself. You simply produce it. Now, just as a side note, I think this is like one of the cruelest things you can tell children. Like if, you, if you're not happy, well, it's your fault. Just, just, just find it. Just produce it out of nothing, right? But there's no other source for such happiness, so it must come from within. And so look what we've done. We've taken moral direction and internalized it. We've taken the law of God and replaced it with intuition. And God is now replaced with the self. Now you may say, yes, that's the way the world thinks. But not us. Not us. Because we're Christians, right? But the point of the illustration with Aristotle is just that. That when you swim long enough in these waters and a certain kind of pollutant flushes over your gills, it gets into your bloodstream. Mind you, that was a children's movie teaching this kind of internal moral compass devoid of all things external to find happiness. A children's movie just dropped into the well of our children's imaginations to take root and grow up into, well, whatever it does to teenagers and young adults. One missionary returning home, uh, I believe he was in Africa before he came back, observed that the American culture, afresh, with new eyes, because he'd been in Africa for a long time. This is what he said. We are swimming in one of the most complex and challenging cultural contexts ever. Every day brings confrontation with cultural messages through advertisements, entertainment, and conversation of those around us. We have become Aristotle's fish. So it's my goal today to point you to Psalm 32, which I hope will open up our eyes in new ways to behold the glory of God, help us think more deeply about ourselves, and rejoice in our Savior. So I hope you're there already in Psalm 32. Let me read this for us, and then we'll dive in. Psalm 32. A Maschil of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the summer heat. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Thus far the reading of God's word. Pray with me for a moment. Lord Jesus, we bow before you again, and we confess again that you have paid it all, that you are our vision, 
that your amazing grace sets us free. And were that not enough, we would be so bold to ask for more. Would you now open the eyes of our heart, enlighten our minds to behold new and wonderful things from your word. For your glory, for our good, in your name we pray, amen and amen. Well, we begin right off the bat in verses 1 and 2. Again, let me read these for you. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That word transgression there means that someone has crossed an objective line external to themselves. When you're driving on the road, you might transgress the middle line of the road. You ought not do that, you understand. To transgress is to cross a line. In other words, the morality of the universe is fixed. It's not determined by our own whims any more than the middle of the line on the road is, the middle of the road with a line is. But instead, David says that his transgression, look at that, is forgiven, which also means that there's somebody else outside of himself to whom he's accountable. There's somebody else who holds him to account. Our problem is not that we are not being true to ourselves. Our problem is that we're not being true to God. But praise be to God. He is forgiven. David is excited about this when he thinks about his sin, what it really is, because he knows that he has transgressed God's perfect law. He has spoiled God's image in the world and smeared his glory. But at the same time, he also knows that the same God has forgiven him. Hence, he says in verse 1, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And then at the very end, he concludes, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but be glad in the Lord and rejoice in his righteousness. David has a concept that the moral structure of the universe is set by somebody outside of himself, namely God. Laments that he has crossed that line, but at the same time rejoices knowing that that's that same God who forgives him. It's not, the law is not internal to himself, nor is he on a psychological pursuit to forgive himself. He is looking to God for that. And notice that it's done with a covering. Do you see that there? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to cover David's sins? Surely this is invoking the imagery of the Israelite sacrificial system. I'm sure uh, you have some familiarity with how that would work. The worshiper, in atonement for his or her sins, would bring an animal usually a lamb or a dove, whatever they could afford, to the tabernacle or to the temple. The priest would take that animal, the animal would be sacrificed, and its blood would cover the altar. It was symbolic of two things. Number one, a substitution. That God has a moral complaint against you, but in his mercy he will accept the substitute as a sacrifice on your behalf. And then the covering of the blood would thereby cover you from your sins. And so the point here is that, is that the blood of the animal covers over the worshiper, symbolically as it covers the altar, so that the Lord sees the sacrifice and not the sin. And the Israelites would do this every single day. 
You could bring a sacrifice any day, and the priests were doing this all the time for the populace. But there was one day out of the year, one day, it was called the Day of Atonement, where the priest would make a sacrifice for himself and for the holy place and then for all the people of Israel in case there were sins, and of course there were, that you didn't know about. Some transgression that you have that you're unaware of, presumptuous sin. And then equally, just times you couldn't make it to the tabernacle or temple to make these sacrifices. So day in and day out, this would happen. And then year in and year out on the Day of Atonement, there'd be this once and for all covering for the people. But you know what happened on the day after the Day of Atonement, right? More sin. (laughs) And so they need another Day of Atonement next year and next year and next year. Because in verse 2, they have new iniquities the Lord is counting against them. Well, there's no surprise, I hope, to hear that in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul quotes this verse and applies it to the forgiveness that's in Jesus. In other words, those daily sacrifices, those sacrifices on the Day of Atonement once a year, year over year over year, were pointing forward to a great final climactic sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, by whose blood he would cover his people forever, once and for all. One sacrifice to end them all. That's why they had the recurring sacrifices, day after day, year after year. So people would sometimes ask, how long, O Lord, until this is complete? How long until this is enough? And the answer is, when my son Jesus Christ comes, who lives a perfect life, He will sacrifice himself, and by his blood will his people be covered of their sins, and the Lord will count no iniquity against them. His sacrifice is the true covering, whereby God can say, I have nothing else against them. They have no debt. I have no sin to count against them. Imagine that. God looks on you and says, I have no complaint Because when I look on you, I see the blood of Jesus, which is a perfect covering. Can you say that? Can you say that? Can you, like David, say that you are the blessed man or woman? Have your sins been forgiven by somebody outside, namely God, through the blood of Jesus? Or are you trying to cover your own sin? Do you notice that in verse 3? Look at verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as like the summer heat. Now verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. You see that? Same word. David is saying, when I kept silent, when I did not confess that I had transgressed the law of God, when I pretended like my sin was not bad or to transgress the law of God is not actually a real problem or something like that, instead I tried to cover it myself. I tried to cover it myself. And so what David is putting before us is two paths here. You can turn to God for the covering of Jesus' blood, for forgiveness of sins, or you can try to cover it yourself. 
Try to cover your own sin. Now, how do people cover their own sins? What, what would that even look like? Well, I, we are very sophisticated sinners, and I think we have many, many ways to do that. The first one would look like this. Blame somebody else. I mean, that, is a, that is a wonderful escape, isn't it? Just the other day, uh, it was like two days ago, my son Andreas didn't take his plate into the kitchen. He's always expected to take his plate into the kitchen. Not a big offense, right? This is not a big deal. But I simply said, Andreas, you didn't take your plate into the kitchen. Silas distracted me. Boom. It was like, it was like, it was like ready to go. It's like he knew I was going to say that and he was ready to go. Or was it just instinctive? He reached for somebody else to blame. How often do you do that? How often do you know in your conscience that you've transgressed the law of God and you immediately reach out for somebody else to put this on? Or we might kind of psychologize and say, well, that's just the way I am. That's just the way God made me. Ah, yes, kind of a combination of one and two. That's just the way I am, you know. This is, this is just me being me. I'm being true to myself after all. And it's really God's fault, right? Or maybe we'll just say it's not as bad as it seems. I mean, after all, God is so forgiving, right? I mean... Come on, here we got Psalm 2 and Romans 3 and 4. He's so forgiving. It's really, you know, God is a God of grace, and, and it's really no big deal. So we can minimize its power. Or we can say something like, well, I just kind of deserve this, don't I? I work hard. I sacrifice a lot. People under underappreciate me. And so there's this little pet grudge in my heart or lust in my eyes or theft with my hands or whatever it might be that I, I, I just kind of deserve it, don't I? But notice, if you will, that when we cover our iniquity in these ways, God does not let us off the hook. Notice what he says in verse 4. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Do you see that? When I kept silent, when I did not confess, there it is, verse 3, I kept silent, my bones wasted away, groaning all day long, because not I had this internal compulsion to be true to myself and I was denying my internal uh, intuition. No, again, the reality comes from the outside. It was God whose hand was heavy upon him. It was God who was on his conscience. His hand was heavy upon me. Imagine a, a, a gym ball or a balloon that when it's pressed down, it starts to deform and is in threat of being popped or broken. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. God is inflicting this burden on his conscience. It's not an internal psychological musing whatsoever. And so David's reaction is brilliant. In verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I acknowledge my sin to you and did no longer cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Again, when we try to cover our own sins, either by ignoring them 
blaming somebody else, minimizing them psychologically, internalizing them or something like that, we waste away, we groan, we dry up like a well in the summer heat under the pressure of his heavy hand. Now let me just interject that there are two additional ways that we cover our sins. Number one is by works righteousness. Once we get past the stage of blaming others, blaming God, rationalizing our sins, or whatever, or wrapping it up in our cultural language of being true to myself, there are two ways left. One of them is works of righteousness. I'll speak with a little more piety. I'll pray a little longer. I'll wear nicer clothes to church. I'll sing a little louder. I'll give a little more. I'll serve a little more. I wasn't planning on coming to the members meeting tonight, but you know, because of what I did yesterday, maybe I will. As though God is going to be impressed or bribed with our activity and our change of stature. That's another way that we might try to cover our sins. But I think the most common way that we cover our sins, once again, once we've recognized them as such, is secrecy. It's secrecy. Nobody else sees what I'm doing. No one else knows what I'm taking. No one else knows what I'm thinking or feeling. As long as I can stay out of the eyes of the world, then I've kind of covered my sin, haven't I? Oh, I know. God sees all. I know. But he's merciful and gracious and kind and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding, steadfast love and forgiveness, right? It rolls off our tongues like it's no big deal. But as long as others don't see what I'm doing, covering my sins. We should thank God that in those instances, he will cause our bones to waste away. His hand will be heavy upon us and his strength is dried up. Our strength will be dried up. In other words, those are acts of mercy. To just let us, our conscience go and to not feel any sting for our rebellion and godlessness that would be, that would be like a, a child who neglects his children. But God is compassionate towards us to press on us so that we might come to our senses like David. I acknowledge my sin to you. I will not cover my iniquity. I'll share a brief story with you as well. When I was, uh, well, I don't know when this was. This was many years ago. I had a particular sin that I felt like I needed to confess. And I was sharing it with a friend. His name's Phil. And uh, I was being very vague about it, very beat around the bush about it, right? Finally, he said, hey, you got to name that sin. you got to tell me exactly what you're talking about. And suddenly I was like, oh, my goodness. I just wanted to have this casual conversation that I might be able to sate my conscience. I, I told somebody, right? But he wanted to dig in and press in. And so I told him, and a week later he followed up, and a month later he followed up again to ask me how I was doing in mortifying that sin in my life by the Spirit. And I came to deeply appreciate Phil as a true friend. You see, what I'm proposing is that we need to have good, close friends, relationships with people in the church, 
where we can confess our sins to each other as a function of confessing our sins to the Lord. Psalm 32, so we confess our sins to the Lord. But how many times have you confessed your sin to the Lord and a week later confessed the same sin? Two weeks later confessed the same sin. And there I go again, three weeks later, confessing the same sin, right? But when you have to look somebody in the eye and that somebody else can look you in the eye and follow up with you, it becomes a little more real, doesn't it? Because we're Protestants, I'm a Protestant, right? When we hear about confession, it can sound very Catholic, right? I know Catholics visit the priest and the confession, and the priest absolves them of their sins and these kinds of things, right? But there is a place in the Christian life, completely different from that Catholic practice, where we confess our sins to each other as a function of confessing to Christ. Because we are the body of Christ. What is true of Jesus is true of us. So confessing to each other is a way of confessing to Christ and beseeching his grace. And so we can tell people about our lust, our pride, our anger, our jealousy, covetousness, fear of man, and so forth. And this allows the other person then to follow up with you. Now listen, I'm not proposing, I'm not proposing that we just air our dirty laundry to everybody in the church. But everybody needs a good friend, a faithful brother or sister in the Lord, that on a regular occasion, they can confess their sins to each other. And if you don't have anything to confess, well then, you're probably not paying very careful attention to yourself. Because you're still sinners. We still sin. We still desire to walk with Christ, but fail in many ways. Now even as I recommend this, practice of mutual confession of sins to one another. I know many people will just never do it. We'll never do it. Why will we never do it? Well, because we're Aristotle's fish. We live in an individualistic and private culture. There are so many opportunities to keep things to ourselves and think only of ourselves that it will take a lot to get out of that comfort zone to share our innermost being with other people. But I would warn you, if you don't, you will miss out on the kind of joy David has here. The word blessed in verse 1 could just as well be translated happy. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no deceit, uh, iniquity. And then at the very end, he says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. If you don't have a regular practice, of confessing your sins, then you will miss out on that joy as well. And so you need a friend who will not judge you, (laughs) you understand, or not bring up your confessions to you as a kind of a a weapon against you in some disagreement or something down the line, but who will point you to Christ, who will hear of your sin and point you to the covering that Jesus offers. Because that's, again, what the body of Christ does. Points us to Christ. This idea that God forgives sins not by your own works righteousness or your own excuse-making 
but by the blood of Christ is pretty scandalous, isn't it? Everything in your life you earn. You earn your grades. You earn your paycheck. You earn respect. But the thing that matters the most, to be forgiven of your transgressions before God, is just given to you by the blood covering of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jews and Muslims criticize Christians for this doctrine. Here's what they say. Listen, if you just tell people your sins are forgiven because of somebody else's righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, then you've pulled away the safeguard from licentious living. That is to say, immoral living. People will just do their deviant, sinful behavior by their own inclination because there's nothing to stop them from from doing so because they're just going to be forgiven, right? You need some kind of law in place. You need some kind of threat in place to keep them back. Well, this misunderstands our doctrine of what we call regeneration. What does it mean to be born again? Because when Jesus applies his blood covering you to forgive your sins, he doesn't just leave you there. He doesn't just leave you there. He also gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives you the gift of his resurrection-empowered life to live in a new way. And this is what David is thinking about here, something in that line, in verse 8. Look at verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or the mule without understanding, but must be curved with bit and bridle. It will not come near to you. In verses 1 through 7, David is talking. He's talking to the Lord, and he's talking to you. Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, right? He's praising God and instructing you. But then in verse 8, notice that the pronouns have changed. It's no longer David talking to God or us. It's God talking to David. Do you see that? When one turns to Jesus and receives the forgiving grace of his death and resurrection, then he becomes your instructor. He becomes your teacher. He counsels you, guides you in the way that you should go. Regeneration, to be born again, is a genuine reality for the Christian. The old is gone. The new has come. We just sung about it. The Lord can melt the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh to write his law upon your heart so that you then live out the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount and all the teachings of the Scripture, not by compulsion, threat, or fear, but by joy and wisdom and knowledge that this is the right path because the Spirit has given you eyes to see that. The Spirit also convicts you of your sins and guides you in new ways of righteousness, picks you up when you fall down. You see, this is the glory of the Christian faith, that God forgives and changes the sinner to be more Christ-like. You know, that's actually why you're here today. The Sunday gathering is set aside in God's wisdom so that you will have a regular anchor point in your week, a dock, as it were, to always come back to when you've been swimming in the seas of the culture the other six days of the week. That is to say, this is the place where the true story of creation 
sinfulness, redemption, grace through Jesus Christ is being told through the songs, through the prayers, through the sermon, through the, uh, through the Lord's Supper, so that you can be flushed out, as it were, from all the cultural influences in the rest of the week that is very individualistic, self-serving, and psychologizing of our sin. We get wet, in other words, in our jobs. We get wet through our technology, through the fast pace of life, through the entertainment that is constantly before our eyes, through the propaganda, and so on and so forth throughout the week, that we need some moments out of the water to understand afresh sin and grace, being born again and walking with Christ. God is kind to give you Sundays to gather with your brothers and sisters to that end. We skipped over, however, verses 6 and 7. Let's go back and catch those. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. If you're not a believer here today, I want you to deeply think about this question. What is wrong with humanity? Every worldview, philosophy, religion has some kind of idea of what is the good life and that there's something wrong with humanity so that we cannot achieve the good life. Well, what is it? What is wrong with humanity? What is the problem? Is it this internal, psychological intuition that we're not following, and if we can all just be true to ourselves, we'll all manufacture happiness from within? Or is it our, is our uh, misery and our brokenness and our death even the result of God? pressing his hand upon us because we've transgressed his law. My friend, David would point you to the latter and remind you in verse 6, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. What is the obverse of that? There is a time when the Lord will not be found. There is a time when you can no longer reach out to him. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Confess your sins. Turn to Jesus. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and become a new creation in Christ. One of my favorite authors is John Bunyan. If you haven't read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, Find yourself a copy. There are dozens and dozens of contemporized translations. It's written in very old English, right? And I'm going to ruin the ending for you right now. <laughs> At the end of his journey, he's going to the celestial city. He's, going to, he's traveling through the difficulties of this world on his way to heaven. It's the simplest way to put it, right? It's an allegory for the trials and, uh, trials and tribulations of Christians throughout this life as they persevere and endure on their way to heaven. And he meets, of course, all kinds of uh, threats and hypocrites along the way and all these kinds of things. And he comes to the river. On the other side of the river is 
the celestial city, the city of the king. It's a symbol of heaven. And death is, I'm sorry, the river, of course, is a symbol of death. And Christian is invited to come across. And as he comes out into the river, he starts to sink down. He sinks down to his waist and then his shoulders and up to his head, and he feels like he's going to drown. He feels like the waters are rushing too fast and they're going to sweep him away and he'll never reach the city. He'll be swept along into hell because there's a portal to hell right there as well because he starts thinking about his sin. The Lord will not accept me. I know what I've done. I know what I've thought. I know what I've left undone. And he wants of transgression unto the law of God. And so in his thinking about his own sins in the last moments of his life while he's crossing this river, he feels like he's going to be swept away, but he's got a friend named Faithful. We all need a friend named Faithful who tells him, Christian, put your foot down and stand on this rock. You see, the water wasn't deep at all. He simply had to stand up on the rock. Faithful reminded him in that moment of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the covering of Jesus' blood. The point being this, we all need to cross that river. Unless the Lord returns, I understand. But most Christians throughout history cross the river of death. It is the moment in your life when everything is stripped away. Whatever cars, clothes, job, reputation you had is just stolen from you. What will go through your mind at that moment? Will you fear because of your sinfulness, the knowledge that you're about to meet the judge against whose law you have transgressed? Or will you stand up with confidence and say, I cross the river of death on the blood of Jesus? With the confidence to face him, knowing that he will forgive you because of his righteous blood, not because of anything you might have excused yourself of or works of righteousness or blame or secrecy or in any way you tried to cover your sin. Now, how should we feel this morning? How should we feel? Should we be gloomy? Should we go out of here with Slumped shoulders. Oh, he just told us about our sin over and over again. No, we should not wring our hands, but we should stand up with confidence and delight the way David does. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. He begins with the idea of blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, and he concludes with the joy and the hope and the expectation and the gladness of heart of those who live in this way. You see, if we think about our sin and we're convicted and we're sorrowful for them, which we should be, but if we stay there, if we stay in that low state, Christ is not glorified. Because Christ not only wants to forgive you of your sins, but he also wants you to know of your forgiveness of your sins and to be confident in that forgiveness of your sins. You see, this psalm is taking us in two directions, trying to 
Help us come to grips with the horror of our sinfulness to defame the glory of God is a terrible thing. But also to lift us up to the heights of joy and rejoicing in that God himself, through Jesus Christ, is the one who covers our sins. John Owen said, He who thinks lightly of sin thinks lightly of the Savior. He who thinks lightly of sin thinks lightly of the Savior. But the more you know of your own sinfulness, then the more you recognize what Jesus has done. He has much to be forgiven of, loves much. And so we go down into the valley of contrition in verses 3 and 4 to come out with the covering of Christ in verses 1 unto the mountain of rejoicing in verse 11. It turns out, therefore, that happiness actually isn't this internal fountain of youth that you can just find a way to well up into, if you can just have the right Facebook profile or something like that, and create in your own efforts joy out of sorrow. Rather, happiness, rejoicing of heart, comes from the outside. When you recognize there's an external, objective, moral structure to the universe and I have crossed it. I have left undone, and I have not conformed unto the law of God. But equally, the one who is outside gave his son to live a perfect life, to die and rise again, to forgive me of my sins, to cover me for my sins, and give me the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the source of joy. And so I commend to you two other brief passages from the Scriptures. Isaiah 57, 15 says this. Thus says the Lord, who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lonely, to revive the heart of the sorrowful. And Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. Let's pray.